Jerusalem channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. The prophet Isaiah declared God's command to speak tenderly to Jerusalem because her warfare is accomplished. But looking at today's news headlines, there's no sign that Israel's warfare is truly over. I wonder, can Bible prophecies have more than one fulfillment or even layers of fulfillments? And what has this got to do with what the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble? Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. In the Hebrew Bible, in Jeremiah 30, God foretold an unparalleled time of trouble, characterized by horrific birth pains, but followed by the return of scattered Jews and Israelites to the Holy Land to seek the Lord and their Davidic King, Messiah. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, God called this unparalleled period the time of Jacob's trouble. Centuries later in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus anticipated the same time period, which he referred to as a time of tribulation. Revelation chapter 7 describes this end time as the great tribulation. Has Israel already passed through the time of Jacob's trouble? Or is the Great Tribulation still an event in the future? One argument is that Jacob's trouble was fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Or perhaps Jacob's trouble should be linked to the Holocaust. Or is there yet a layer of prophecy concerning Jacob's trouble still yet in the future? Even as some modern Israeli Orthodox rabbis are teaching, you see, as faithful watchmen on the walls, we can't overlook what even the rabbis of this generation are saying, despite the Holocaust being in the past. In Israel, in March 2001, 27 leading rabbis and Torah sages made a declaration concerning what they called the dawning of the prophetic time of Jacob's trouble to befall Israel and the world in the end times. Of course, the exact starting date of this period is not easily determined, but the announcement that the times of Jacob's trouble are upon us was accompanied by trumpet blasts at the Western Wall from a ram's horn known as a shofar. The singing of psalms was mingled with wails of repentance and tears. The decree was made by the Gedolei Yisrael, the Great Ones, a rabbinical policy-making council and their announcement coincided with the start of the new biblical Hebrew month of Aviv, usually designated as a Yom Kippur Katan, a minor Yom Kippur or Judgment Day. Now concerning eschatology, the study of the end times, our churches are divided, fractured, and confused. There's much resentment of evangelicals who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that's the blessed hope that's found in Titus 2.13 concerning that coming wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, King Messiah, will be revealed and believers will be translated to heaven before the outpouring of God's wrath 
in the Great Tribulation. Those who don't adhere to a belief in a pre-tribulation rapture label the so-called pre-trib evangelicals as selfish escapists for daring to want to escape the horrors to come. But I ask you, is that a selfish or is it a wise faith attitude? The pre-tribbers are even sometimes accused of being spiritual traitors because of their willingness to embrace the coming of the Lord while leaving our brethren the Jews to carry on towards their ultimate destiny of coming to terms with God and his Messiah. But I maintain that the pre-tribulation rapture is all a matter of revelation. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. From the beginning of my earliest childhood memories, when Jesus appeared to me and he healed me of a deadly illness, I've been a believer in the Lord. Then in my teenage years, I began to experience many dreams about the rapture. But this word rapture in English has emotional connotations, whereas the New Testament word on which the doctrine is actually based, the Greek word hapazo, simply means a swift action of the Lord in the future when he will snatch away believers, the bride of Messiah, from the earth without dying, in much the same way that Elijah the prophet was snatched and translated without dying. You'll find that account in 2 Kings chapter 2. In these dreams, I would see myself and other believers suddenly raised into the atmosphere to meet the Lord in the air, as the Apostle Paul prophesied in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. That verse says that after the Lord descends with a shout, with the shofar of God, the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In my dreams, I could see some persons who were left behind. I've also had dreams of the tribulation period after the bride of Messiah has been removed from the earth. Visions of tremendous chaos, confusion, and devastation, but also a time of salvation for the remnant in Israel. During my personal revival that began in my early 20s, I was drawn to study Bible prophecy and eschatology. Through my years of studies, I came to the conclusion that a pre-tribulation rapture is the most consistent stance according to the whole tenor of Scripture because prophecies on the second coming are very diverse implying stages. The true church, the bride and body of Messiah, will be raised from the dead and the living members will be translated to heaven, vanishing into thin air suddenly in the twinkle of an eye, Paul said, before the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth and before the national salvation of Israel. You see, the church and the nation Israel are related but separate. You may ask, if God gave me a relationship with the Jewish people as a minister of reconciliation, and if I truly love them, how could I believe that there is more suffering for them in their future? Wasn't Jeremiah 37, the verse that prophesied the time of Jacob's trouble, fulfilled in the Holocaust? 
Yes, one could surely say that the time of Jacob's trouble was fulfilled at various times of great trauma in history, but never fully, because Jeremiah 37 specifies that Jacob will be saved out of it. At the time of the Holocaust, tragically, the Jewish people were not saved. Whole communities were annihilated. However, the Bible prophesies a time of war when Israel is regathered in the Holy Land. And at that time, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39, God will supernaturally intervene to save Israel from destruction from a confederacy of invaders. This is called in the Bible the Gog and Magog War. And the rabbis in Israel have also prophesied that they see this war coming soon in the future. The Bible itself teaches that there are more birth pains yet to come for Israel before the return of Jesus, when he redeems regathered Israel, and when he returns to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So to get to grips with Israel's future, has Israel's time of hiding in cellars, attics, and closets been a thing of the past when the Jewish people were scattered among the nations? or? Will the Jews in regathered Israel be forced to flee and hide one last time? In fact, will they take refuge in the rocky mountain stronghold of Petra in Jordan, as many eschatologists teach? Well, before we proceed, I believe it's spiritually healthy to echo the words of a great 19th century Bible scholar who wrote concerning his commentary on the book of Revelation, that if feebleness or rashness or overconfidence in his own understanding had distorted anything, he could only deplore the fault and pray to God to send a more confident person to unfold the truths in this book. He wrote, according to the grace and light given to me, I've spoken. If I'm wrong, God forgive me. If I'm right, God bless my feeble testimony. In either case, God speed his everlasting truth. And to that, I say amen. And so in my quest, sometimes a book becomes a drink of cold water in the desert. And that was certainly the case with a recent publication of a long-awaited book called The Master's Plan, The Messianic Rapture by Leopoldo Amaya, the beloved husband of a friend who has also lived in Israel. Leopoldo spent many years studying Hebrew and Greek words concerning what he calls the Messianic Rapture, and there was much spiritual warfare associated with the publishing of his book, even his death prior to the publication. Amaya explained that the word for a Jewish wedding ceremony, Nesuin, means to lift up or carry, and carrying the bride in a carriage on poles is an ancient wedding custom. Although seldom done today, the ceremony bears the name. The chuppah, the wedding canopy, is not only related to the bridal chamber, it's also lifted up on poles like the ancient marriage carriage for the bride. The fun and often raucous celebration of lifting the bride and the bridegroom in chairs is rooted in this idea. After the wedding ceremony, the bride and bridegroom retreat to a private chamber. This is a time of togetherness before the great feast that awaits them. 
The bride and bridegroom are together for seven days, and they're not apart for seven days. Jesus, Yeshua, used the word receive in John 14, 3 to comfort his disciples. He used classic wedding language found in the Nesuin, the Jewish wedding, to talk about why he had to leave. The Hebrew equivalent to receive, he said, I'm going to come and receive you again, means automatically to receive, to lift, carry away, to fetch, to marry, to take up and to take away. As I was reading Amaya's book, it clicked in my mind that whenever we see a bride lifted and carried in an ancient wedding procession, or the bride and bridegroom lifted up in chairs at a Jewish wedding, this is a picture of the lifting up and catching away of the bride of Messiah in the great snatch, the rapture. If, like me, you love the Bible doctrine, anticipating the rapture of believers, which the Apostle Paul said is our blessed hope, you'll be refreshed by the concept of the Messianic rapture, which focuses on the idioms that Yeshua himself used, the typology of Middle Eastern weddings. The Messiah as the bridegroom and believers as the bride are the keys to understanding the glorious event in biblical doctrine of the rapture. This view was taught by the Messiah himself in John chapter 14 in verses 1 to 3. There Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, many abodes. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In this passage, the Messiah taught his disciples the typical Jewish wedding custom of the bridegroom returning for his awaiting bride, just as Messiah will return for those eagerly anticipating his imminent return. In the Jewish marriage custom, there are no intervals of pre, mid, or post, but rather there are scriptures with a time frame of a week of seven days. The classic wedding week is found in Jacob's marriage to Rachel in Genesis 29, where Rachel's father asks Jacob to fulfill her week. This is Bible prophecy code language for seven years. So the messianic rapture involves one complete week, seven years, not separated by a mid-tribulation break after three and a half years, nor a seven-year post-tribulation rapture at the end of the great tribulation, because the Messiah promised, if it were not so, I would have told you. Yeshua would not have referenced the Jewish wedding custom if he had not meant what he said. The bridegroom is the one who rescues, who takes us out, and even promises a vanishing experience in Luke 21:36, where Jesus said, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. While the Messianic rapture is deeply established in the Torah, in the original covenant, and it's not just a theory that was invented by Christians who wanted to track a system of Bible progression through history. 
Rather, the Jewish wedding love story is key to understanding the Messianic rapture, as told by Zola Levitt, and his teaching is freely available on the internet. Zoa Levitt explained the ancient Jewish customs like this. When a young man in Jesus' time saw the girl that he wanted, or the girl his father said he wanted, he would approach her with a marriage contract. He would come to her house with a covenant, a legal contract, giving the terms of his marriage proposal. The most important consideration in the contract was the price the bridegroom was willing to pay to marry the bride. Then the bridegroom would pay the price, and he would pay dearly to marry the girl of his choice. And so in like manner, Jesus came to his own, to the people of Israel, and he was prepared to pay the highest price. He came with the new covenant to sign with his blood. You see, when God made covenants in the Bible with his people, animals were sacrificed and their blood ratified the covenants. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that God would make a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, and Messiah came to fulfill it in his blood. Next, in the Jewish wedding customs, the bridegroom would make a little speech to his bride saying, I'm going to leave now and prepare a place for you, but I will return to my father's house and build a bridal chamber and I'll come for you again. So he would depart and actually go and build a separate room on his father's house. The bridal chamber had to be beautiful and stocked with provisions since the bride and bridegroom were going to remain inside for seven days. Meanwhile, the bride was obligated to do a lot of waiting and preparation. Custom provided that she would have a torch or an oil lamp ready in case the bridegroom came suddenly at night in the darkness. She had to be ready to travel at a moment's notice. During this long period of waiting, the bride was referred to as consecrated, set apart, bought with a price. She was truly a lady-in-waiting, but there was no doubt that her bridegroom would return for her. Sometimes a young man would depart for a very long time, but he had already paid a high price for his bride, so he was going to return for the one with whom he had made a covenant. And whenever she stepped out of the house, the bride would wear a veil so that other young men would know that she was spoken for. Zola Levitt wrote that today the bride of Messiah wears a veil, human, uh, figuratively speaking. Those not understanding our covenant try to make other contracts with us that would violate the one we have with our bridegroom. So we must resist those other offers and wait only for the one who paid the highest price for us with his blood. Well, as time progressed, the bride would assemble her bridesmaids and they would each have their oil lamps ready. They would wait at the bride's house every night on the chance that the bridegroom would come along with his party and sweep them all away to a joyous and sudden wedding ceremony. Finally, the chamber would be ready and the bridegroom would assemble his friends to accompany him on the exciting trip to claim his bride. He and the young men would set out in the night, making every attempt to surprise the bride. And here is an intriguing part. Zola Levitt wrote that all the Jewish brides were stolen. You see, the Jews had a special understanding of the romantic heart of a woman. 
What a thrill to be abducted and carried off into the night, not by a stranger, but by one who loved her so much that he had paid a high price for her. Well, it's only natural that Jesus uses imagery in his teaching in Matthew chapter 25. In that teaching, he said, At midnight a shout went out, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go out to meet him. So when the wedding party reached the house of the bridegroom's father, then the couple would enter their chamber and shut the door. No one else could enter. Since the wedding was actually going to take place seven days, occasionally the host would run out of wine. In John chapter 2, the Lord himself attended a wedding at Cana, and he was called upon to replenish the wine for the celebrants. But the celebrating wouldn't start right away. First, the marriage had to be consummated. Thus, the friend of the bridegroom, the individual we might refer to today as the best man, he would stand near the door of the bridal chamber waiting to hear the bridegroom's voice. And when the marriage was consummated, the bridegroom would tell his friend through the door, and then the friend would go to the wedding guests and announce the good news. The celebration would begin and it would continue for an entire week. At the end of the week, the bride and bridegroom would make their long-awaited appearance to the cheers of the crowd. There would then be a joyous meal, the marriage supper, which we might refer to as the wedding reception to honor the new couple. And the New Testament speaks of the time when Jesus will be consummated with his bride and it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Well, at this point in the wedding ceremony, the bride would have discarded her veil since she was now a married woman, and all would see exactly who it was the bridegroom had chosen and paid such a high price for. The new couple and the guests would enjoy a magnificent feast to conclude the entire matrimonial week. After the marriage supper, the bride and bridegroom would depart not remaining any longer at the father's house. They would go to their own house, which had been prepared by the bridegroom. The bride of Messiah will spend seven years in heaven at the home of the father, and then the bride will return with the bridegroom, King Jesus, to occupy his kingdom on earth. So readers of the gospel can easily see the beautiful analogies between these ancient Jewish wedding customs and the manner in which the Lord himself called out his chosen bride and the surprise that he intends when he will carry her away. She must be ready. As the bridegroom, Jesus warned in Matthew 25, verse 13, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. It's going to be covert the covert glorious appearing of the bridegroom coming to seize his waiting bride is foreshadowed in these beautiful Jewish wedding customs. Many persons who have railed against the rapture have implied that it's somehow a false contrived doctrine. But take for example the Hebrew word cloud, anon. It has in its definition an aspect of a covert operation. And Paul, as a Hebrew scholar, prophesied that when Jesus descends for his bride, we will be caught up in the clouds. And that's going to be a covert operation for sure. 
Many authors and bloggers limit God because they can't envision the second coming in stages, such as a furtive pre-tribulation rapture in the atmosphere, followed later by the Lord's visible second coming physically to earth, when Yeshua will set his feet on the Mount of Olives seven years later. However, in his book, The Messianic Rapture, Amaya pointed out that many times the Lord has descended to earth. In the Bible, the Lord's glory cloud often descended, for example, among the children of Israel in the wilderness and also in the temple. The Lord descended at least twice in the life of the Apostle Paul to speak with him. The Lord even condescended to descend to appear even to me in my childhood to heal me. And think about this. After the Lord's resurrection, tombs were open and many saints came out and appeared to eyewitnesses. So when scoffers within the churches say that the Lord can't first descend with a shout to open graves and to remove the living believers, they're limiting God Almighty and they're discounting the many wonders that God has already done in the past. Think about Matthew 27, 52. What a verse. This is one of the most intriguing verses in the Bible. It says that after the resurrection of Jesus, the tombs in Jerusalem actually broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Those who came out of their graves were first fruits of the Lord's victory over death. And that's past history, folks. It's already happened that tombs have been ripped open and the dead have been raised. And so it can surely happen again. The question remains in today's program. Are you ready for the Lord's sudden appearing? Remember, the bridegroom Jesus said that he's coming like a thief in the night. A thief comes to steal precious jewels. And you are a jewel in the sight of the Lord. He paid a tremendous price for your eternal salvation with his own blood. The good news is that all who call upon his name shall be saved. That's the Bible's promise. But the Lord must be received now. Soon it will be too late. I urge you to do what I've done, to repent of all of our sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the one and only mediator between God and man. Amen. Well, in the meantime, I want to encourage you that all of our videos are available for free viewing. To strengthen your faith at our website, exploits.tv, where you can also click online to receive our color magazine exploits. And you can sign up for weekly email updates. Our ministry is based upon Daniel 11.32. That verse declares that the people who know their God will be strong and carry out exploits. In other words, we're going to take action and accomplish the works of the Lord in our generation. So let's stay in touch to encourage one another through social media. And don't forget to invite your friends to watch. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and come Lord Jesus, Maranatha.